things aren't always uh, as they may appear at first glance, and sometimes we learn this truth the hard way, considering the following top ten things, or top ten words of wisdom learned from children. Number one, never trust a dog to watch your food. Says Patrick, age 10, he learned that. Number two, never try to pet a dog when he's eating. Uh, the same person learned that as well. So number three, felt tip markers are not good to use as a lipstick, Lauren discovered, age nine. Number four, puppies still have bad breath even after eating Tic Tacs. That's nice to know. Randy, age nine, learned this eternal truth, stay away from prunes. Number six, never pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. Joel discovered that. Number seven, never tell your mom her diet's not working. Number eight, never sneeze in front of mom when you're eating crackers. Number nine, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let your mom brush your hair. That is timeless. And number 10, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid, don't answer him. Over the years, I have spoken with many men and women who have had what they consider to be a life-changing experience. Uh, for some, it was marriage or having children or grandchildren. For others, it was a career change or a ge geographic relocation. Maybe it was a diet or exercise program or travel and exposure to different peoples and different lands and different cultures. Others have learned the hard way through divorce or bankruptcy or a stint in a rehab center. And as significant and life-altering as these may be, none can change one's final destiny, which is death and what lies beyond. Which brings me to the following folks who learned truth the hard way. At a young age, John Newton went to sea, and like most sailors of his day, he lived a life of rebellion and lawlessness. And for several years, he worked on slave ships, capturing slaves for sale to the plantations of a new world. So low did he sink that at one point he became a slave himself, captive of another slave trader. Eventually, he became the captain of his own slave ship. The combination of a frightening storm at sea coupled with his reading of Thomas Akempis's classic Imitation of Christ planted the seeds that resulted in his conversion. He went on to become a leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century England along with such men as John and Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, and William Wilberforce. On his tombstone is inscribed the following epitaph which was written by Newton himself. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. When he wrote the beloved hymned Amazing Grace, he knew firsthand of the truths that it proclaimed. Mel Trotter was a barber, by profession and a drunkard by choice. So low had he sunk that when his young daughter died, he stole the shoes she was to be buried in and pawned them for money to buy more drinks. 
He staggered one night into the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago and was marvelously saved. Burdened for men and of Skid Row, he opened a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He went on to found more than 60 more missions and became supervisor of a chain stretching from Boston to San Francisco. One day in August, the year 386, a professor of rhetoric named Aurelius Augustine sat despondently in his garden. Although the son of a Christian mother, he had abandoned his mother's faith in favor of lesser-known Persian religions. He took a mistress whom he lived with for 13 years, abandoning the Persian religion as unsatisfactory. He continued a futile search for truth. Through the preaching of the church father Ambrose, he became intellectually convinced of the truth of Christianity. Yet he held back, surrendering his life to Christ. As he put it, prevented from accepting the faith by weakness and dealing with sexual temptation. Now in the midst of his turmoil, he heard a, voices, a child's voice singing in Latin, Tola Legia, which means take up and read. And in his book, Confessions, he describes what happens next. He says, I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and to read the first passage on which my eye should fall. So I hurried back to the place where Elpius, his friend, was sitting. For when I stood up to move away, I had put down the book containing Paul's epistles. I seized it and opened it, and in silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. Romans chapter 13. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence... It was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Delivered from a life of sin and confusion, Augustine went on to become the greatest theologian the church had known since the Apostle Paul. Chuck was an attorney with an appetite for power and his pursuit of such led him to the lofty position of chief counsel for the President of the United States. His view from the top didn't last very long. As he was arrested and convicted of obstruction of justice, while in prison he became aware of his sinfulness and repented and turned to God and responded in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. Today, Chuck Colson heads one of the largest prison ministries in the world dedicated to telling inmates of the redeeming love of God that can be found through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Every one of the people just mentioned had one thing in common, they didn't have a life-changing experience. I want to call it an eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, a life-changing experience is good only for this lifetime. But an eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, changes not only our life here, but also one for all of eternity. Church history is filled with the accounts that I just mentioned, as is this building if you look around. And having gotten to know many of you personally, I know exactly that the deliverance that we see of the people that were just mentioned is equally miraculous in this room today. That through faith in Christ, some have been delivered from adultery, sexual immorality and drunkenness and drug addiction. Others from the haunts of sexual promiscuity that led to abortion, maybe once or even twice. Or more. 
others from lying and cheating and stealing, and still yet others from self-proclaimed goodness. Who are you to say that I'm a sinner? And yet many others from the restraints of religion. All highlight the marvelous power of the gospel to transform sinners. But no transformation is remarkable or has had such far-reaching implications in history as the conversion of a man who went by the name of Saul from the city of Tarsus. So significant an event was his conversion that the Bible records it no less than three times. In Acts chapter 22, in Acts chapter 26, and in our passage for today in Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. As we see this remarkable transformation that takes place in a man who went by the name of Saul, who lived in a city called Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 9, we find this account. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he was journeyed, He was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. One of the most influential testimonies to Christianity was when Saul of Tarsus, perhaps Christianity's most rabid antagonist, had an eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have argued that the testimony of Saul and his ultimate transformation is one of the most solid arguments outside of the resurrection for the reliability and the credibility of the Christian faith. It's an historical event, an historical occurrence. The Encyclopedia Britannica mentions even this transformation in its account of the life of a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. There is no other explanation that can be given other than the one that we find before us in the pages of the Word of God. He clearly tells us exactly what took place in the heart of this man that would take him from a Jesus hater, an enemy of Christ, to an embracer of him as his Lord and Savior. In order to appreciate the significance of the change that took place in this man's life, we must consider his background. It's fitting that such a unique individual would have a unique conversion. If you consider, Saul was by birth a Jew, by citizenship a Roman, by education a Greek, and purely by the grace of God he became a Christian. He was a missionary, theologian, evangelist, pastor, organizer, leader, thinker, fighter for truth, lovers of souls, and never has a more godly man lived except for our Lord himself. Saul was born in Tarsus, which is an important city according to Acts 21 in the Roman province of Cilicia. Tarsus was located near where Asia Minor and Syria met, not far from Antioch. It was famous for the university 
which ranked with those of Athens and Alexandria as among the most honored in the Roman world. His father was a Roman citizen, and Saul was himself a citizen by Roman birth, we're told through Scripture. His Jewish credentials were equally impeccable. Like his father before him, he was a Pharisee. He studied in Jerusalem under the most respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, who he was to inherit his position at some point in time. Since he apparently never met Jesus personally, he must have returned to Tarsus to live after completing his studies. Saul makes his first appearance, as you recall, in the scripture in Acts chapter 6, where he's connected with the murder of Stephen, who was the first martyr for the Christian faith. As we look there, he was probably one of those who debated Stephen and was unsuccessful in trying to refute the claims that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. And out of frustration, embarrassment, and an assault to his pride, he was in hearty agreement when they decided to put Stephen to death. In fact, he was so close to the proximity of Stephen's murder that he said, hey, listen, I'll hold your coats so you can get a good shot at him. There's no question as to his role in the persecution that broke out after Stephen's death. Acts chapter 8, we saw in verses 1 through 3, he masterminded it and was the ringleader of it. He was adept at persecuting believers and the Jerusalem fellowship broke up under the force of his attacks. Many of the Hellenist believers who apparently bore, bore the brunt of the persecution fled from Jerusalem. And as the events of the chapter unfold, Saul was in hot pursuit. And in fact, he gives his own detail of his anger and his hatred for those who had claimed to follow Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26 and listen to his own words as he describes the hatred that was in his own heart for those who followed Jesus Christ. As he gives an account of his life to Agrippa, he says in verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, which was to reject the one they claimed to follow. I tried to force them to do that, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. After the interlude of Philip's ministry back in chapter 8, we now pick up on the account that he was explaining to Agrippa of his hatred and his anger for those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and claimed that He was and is the Savior of the world. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was breathing threats and murders against the disciple. Persecuting Christians consumed his life. The fact that the Bible uses the term breathing threats and murder, I mean, it was like with every breath that he took, he had a passion to eradicate the name of Jesus Christ and all those who would follow Him. He hated Jesus. There was probably no greater enemy in the history of the world to Jesus Christ and Christianity than Saul of Tarsus. Others were content just to get Him out of Jerusalem, let Him go their own way, whatever they did outside of that, out of sight, out of mind, who cares, I don't care, but not Saul. He was going to hunt them down and He was going to kill every last one of them. Men, women, and children 
anyone who claimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and followed Him, He was going to murder them. And He set about to do that. Threats and murder. He wasn't content that they would just flee. He would not be content until the name of Jesus was eradicated from the face of the earth and all of human history. It says, and He asked for letters from Him, speaking of the high priest. The high priest had the authority under Jewish law to be able to do what it is that Saul was asking him to do. He had to go and get permission from the high priest, the head of the Pharisees, to be able to go out and hunt down these people who claimed to follow Christ in order to throw them into prison. Otherwise, what he would do would be illegal. There's a lot of question whether some of the things that were done were illegal anyway, because if you remember in the murder of Stephen, they brought forward false witnesses to testify against him, and they murdered him as they brought forth false witnesses to testify against Jesus, and they would use that as their evidence to go ahead and murder him as well. But the reality and the truth of the matter was this, that he went about it in a at least outwardly um, uh, acceptable manner. Give me letters of authorization because I heard that some of these people have surfaced in Damascus and let me go hunt them down and I'm going to drag them back here. And he was given the authority to do that. And that's what he set out to do. And ask for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Personally, I love the term the way. It came about, if you recall, from Jesus' own words when Philip said, hey, you know, how do we get to the Father? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way. The Bible goes on and says that the way, it's the way into the holy place. It's the way of God, Acts 18. It's also the way of truth, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. God's way is the only way. Jesus Christ is the only way to get into heaven. He warned often that the road to destruction is broad and many enter into it, but the gate that leads to heaven is very narrow. And he called himself the gate, or the door, which leads to salvation. He went about persecuting those who were members of the community called the way. And that's what he set out to do. The focus of our remaining time together and next week will be to uh, look at Saul's conversion from antagonist to apostle and seven features that are true of one who has had an eternal life-changing encounter with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important for us is because there is no more important issue for each one of us individually than to discover in our own life if what we think of ourselves is the same as what God thinks of us. Because if you remember, Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, snuck to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to know he was going to ask this question. But he asked him a very simple question that was this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to be assured of a place in the kingdom of God, which we call heaven? How do I know when I die, I'm going to heaven? And Jesus very clearly said to him, you must be born again. I run into people, as probably you do, who ask the question of me, oh, are you one of those born-again Christians? So now, well, as opposed to what other kind of Christian are you thinking? And it's a great opportunity to discuss it because there is obviously confusion there when you ask that question. 
But according to Jesus, there are no Christians who have not been born again. And so the ignorance that's there has to be met with truth, and it's a great opportunity to ask that question, well, what do you mean? Uh, what other kind of Christian do you think there is? And to be able then to initiate that conversation as we discussed the last time we are together so that we can ask a question, sit back and listen to their response and begin to continue to ask questions so that person begins to question what it is that they thought that they believed. Because obviously if they don't stand upon truth, it's not going to be long before that conversation leads that to crumble underneath them. And it's a wonderful opportunity to do that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Am I sure, based on God's definition, that what I believe about myself is also true of what God says about me? The conversion of Saul of Tarsus gives us a very clear and concise picture of what the transformed life is all about. What it means to be born again. What it means to come into a relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that's the first thing that we'll look at and the only thing that we'll look at in this message for today, and that is that to have a life-changing encounter with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you must put your faith in Him and in Him alone. Now, this remarkable conversion of Saul in which he put his faith in the Savior, you know, that he had been viciously persecuting will help us to see and to ask ourselves some very difficult questions at times, and that is this, do I have the same kind of faith that's described in the transformation of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle? Number one, notice in verse three, in order for a person to come to an eternal life-changing encounter with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there must first be contact with Him. And in verse 3, as we look at this, and it came about that as he journeyed, speaking of Saul, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul was charging full speed for Damascus when he was suddenly stopped dead in his tracks. A light flashed around him, and Saul and his companions were dropped into the dirt. Acts chapter 22 and 26 fill in some of the details as we'll see and we'll go back and forth to look at a complete picture. But confronted with the blazing glory of Jesus Christ, Saul, according to Acts 26, a hardened prosecutor of Christians, was left speechless and in terror. He got knocked into the dirt. I like that. That's a beautiful picture of one who is about to be humbled before the mighty hand of God. Because it says that there was a brilliant light, and it was more brilliant than the Middle Eastern sun at noon. If you've ever been down in the desert in the summertime, and you're out about noon, you know how brilliant the sun can be without a cloud in the sky, and blue as blue can be, and the radiance and the brilliance of it. If you've ever been inside, and you walk outside, and you get that little gopher look on for you, you know... You know, I can't help it. I love the sense of humor of God because I could just see Saul. Man, he had that little, you know, Chuck E. Cheese gopher look when he popped up. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh. And he was knocked to the ground. The brilliance of the sun. He said that it's described as more brilliant than the sun itself, which does not surprise me at all that the one who created the sun would be more brilliant in glory than his creation. Think about it. The brilliance of it. When Jesus went upon the Mount of Transfiguration and the glory of the Lord shone brightly. The Shekinah glory of God. 
If you remember when Moses went up to the mountain and asked that he could see God in all of his glory and all of his brilliance, God said, I'll give you just a little bit because you can't handle it all. And even then, the guy's face lit up like Chernobyl. He came down, man. He was a walking tiki torch. Think about it. He was coming out of the mountain, man, and they just saw this bright light coming down from the mountain at nighttime, just lighting everything up, man. The guy's head was lit up from the glory of God. Saul of Tarsus came into contact with the God of the universe and the glory of the Lord shone upon him. Confronting with it, he was humbled into the dirt. You know, what's ironic was the last person till then to have seen the resurrected, glorified Christ was Stephen as he was being murdered under the hearty approval of Saul of Tarsus. If you remember, as he looked up into heaven, he said, I see the Lord standing at the right hand of God. I see the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus looked up into heaven and he couldn't see, but it was pretty obvious that what Stephen saw was real. And the seeds were planted, the contact was made. On the day that Stephen was murdered, seed was sown in the heart of a man called Saul of Tarsus. And even before that, the seed was sown when he debated him about what it is that he professed to believe and he had no answers for him. Frustrated, this educated man, one of the most brilliant people in all of Judaism, who would rise and inherit the position of Gamaliel as chief teacher of all of the nation. He didn't have an answer for him. Nicodemus did not have an answer for Jesus either, this brilliant teacher of the law. And Jesus rebuked him and said, and let me get this straight. What's your position again? You are teacher of all of Israel and you don't understand what it is that I'm telling you? Oh, God help the people. Because if you're teaching them and you don't understand, what are you telling them? Contact was made. It's a testimony of the power of God's grace that the man involved in Stephen's death would be the next to see Jesus Christ glorified. Which brings me to this truth. Although he doesn't always do it so dramatically, God always initiates the contact in salvation. Turn to John chapter 10. In fact, before we look at that, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 37. 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In verse 44, he goes on to repeat, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up upon the last day. In John chapter 10, we read a similar thought, a similar truth, that those who come to faith in the Savior come only because it's God who draws them to himself. In John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Man, what a beautiful picture of the protection 
of our salvation that's placed in Christ. We cannot come to Him until He draws us to Himself. And those whom God draws to Himself, He shall never cast out and He shall always protect. You and I can't come to faith in the Savior until God draws us to Himself. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 is a story of a man named Zacchaeus. And Jesus finished up his encounter, his life, eternal life-changing encounter that took place in the heart of a man named Zacchaeus, who was a robber, basically, because he was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was a cheat. He stole from people. And yet there was an life, eternal life-changing encounter that took place in his heart. And Jesus completed his time together with these words, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God is hunting us down as I've noted in our study of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, the secretary of treasure to the queen of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, the Holy Spirit sovereignly arranged the circumstances leading to his conversion. That was and always is necessary since unbelieving men being dead in their trespasses and sin cannot come to God on their own. A dead person can't move. So God comes to us. That salvation, that salvation is initiated by God is powerfully stated by Paul to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. In Titus 3, 3, 3 through 5, we read this truth. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. Think about the people that I mentioned in my opening. We were disobedient. We were enslaved to sin. We were foolish. Our, our hearts were darkened in speculation as to who God is and what it's all about and whether He exists or whether He doesn't exist. If He does exist, then He's going to accept us on our terms. We were foolish in that speculation. Our hearts were darkened to God and the things of God. And we were enslaved by sin, our lusts and our pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and even hating one another. But... When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, the Bible says that God gave His only begotten Son because He loved this world. In John chapter 1, we're told that and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. When the, the love of God appeared, Jesus Christ, the Bible says He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. And having not been justified by works, we are justified by faith in the Savior. See, God initiates the contact. And Saul, as all men, would have been eternally lost, condemned, if not for God's grace, initiating contact with him. He initiated contact with him through the scripture that Saul studied. He initiated contact with him through the debate in which he participated with Stephen. He initiated contact with him as Stephen looked up into heaven and saw Jesus Christ risen and glorified, standing at the right hand of God. Saul heard those words and he was troubled by everything that he heard. Because if indeed what he heard was true, everything that he lived for, everything that he believed, everything that he had done, everything that he had pursued his whole life would have to be considered wrong. And pride is a very difficult thing for man to lay aside. 
What is it that God requires of all men but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God? He became quickly convicted of his sin. For every genuine conversion, there must be contact first by God and there must be conviction of sin. Notice back in chapter 9, prostrate on the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The repetition is emphatic. The repetition is purposeful and it marks a rebuke of Saul intended to bring anguish of the soul so that Saul would realize how wrong he had been and guilt would overwhelm him. He was one who had hated Jesus Christ without cause. If you've ever had a child who has done something wrong and you ask them the question, did you do that? Did you do that? Did you do that? The emphasis of repeat is to make the person become more aware of the wrongdoing in their heart. Did you say that? What did you say? Repeat it to me. No, I I can't. No, I won't do that. Did you say it? Did you say it? Yes, I did. See, that brokenness and conviction of sin is critical. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And it marks and reflects an inseparable link between himself as head of the body and its members. Think about it in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus said to the saints, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And in oblivion, they said, when? When did we do that? I don't remember any of that. And he said, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Those who persecute God's people, those who follow Jesus Christ, those who claim Him as Lord and Savior, those who persecute us, who are called by His name, persecute Jesus Himself. Those who reject us and the message that we've been entrusted to share with them ultimately reject Jesus Christ and His authority in their life. Hell will be filled with people who have done one thing and one thing only. They have rejected the authority of Jesus Christ in their life. They have rejected the free gift of God, which is forgiveness through Christ. The Bible says all authority has been given unto Him. Philippians chapter 2 is a picture of the fact that and have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He humbled Himself. And he took on, he was obedient to God, taking on the form of a bondservant, obedient to the point where he went to the cross and he died upon the cross for the sins of the world. The Bible says because of that obedience, that God has highly given him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Jesus himself said, All authority has been given unto me, Jesus Christ will judge every last human being 
who ever lived upon the face of this earth. And the only question that will be asked at that judgment, at the great white throne judgment, is this. Why did you not put your faith and trust in me as your Savior? And when they start to answer, he will open the book that will condemn them of the sin in their life and say, you're a good person and you didn't need me? Then why did you do this? And why did you do that? And why did you say this? And why did you say that? Be gone from me, for I never knew you. And there ain't no do-overs. It's eternal. And it's real. And it's serious. Saul of Tarsus was convicted of his sin. His sin was denying that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. His sin was denying that he ever rose from the dead. And it's pretty obvious when one who supposedly is dead is talking to you that he must be alive. The man was intelligent, but at times he was very ignorant. But this is one time where it kicked in. If you are alive, everything I've been telling about you is a lie. He was convicted of sin. True salvation must include conviction of this damning sin of denying that Jesus Christ is God's Savior to this world. There must be conviction. There is no other sin that finally separates man from God. And Saul knew enough about the Christian faith to hate it and to persecute it. He knew the claims of Jesus and the true history of God's redemption as Stephen had preached it. He had heard a history or summation. If you read and you saw Stephen's defense, he gave a history of the nation of Israel and their interaction with God. The promise of sending a Savior into the world. He had heard it, he knew it, and he knew the claims of Jesus of Nazareth that he was who he claimed to be, God's chosen Savior. And Saul of Tarsus denied that truth. And he tried to kill anyone and everyone who would go around telling people otherwise. He was convicted of his sin. He was crushed into the dirt and he was led to believe what he had previously rejected. And conversion took place in his heart. Notice in verse 5 he says, Who art thou, Lord? A recognition of deity. Who art thou, Lord? Well, he knew it was the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. The whole Christian gospel had filled his mind negatively up to this point. He couldn't wait to stamp it out. But just as so many of us who had heard the gospel presented to us and we vehemently held on and tried to argue against it, the seed was sown and we were troubled. It seems that everywhere I went when I started to hear the gospel, the claims of Christ, the realization of my sinfulness before God, my need to turn to Him and ask for forgiveness and to repent from sin and turn to God and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. It was when I heard that presented to me, it seemed like everywhere I went, God was surrounding with people who would keep telling me the same thing. Do you recognize you're a sinner? Fight it all you want. It doesn't take too long to be convinced of that. Yeah, but I'm not that bad. That's not the question. All of us have grown accustomed to driving the freeways at 70 and 80 miles an hour, watching people go 100 and think we're not that bad. And we carry it over into that, that question, are you a sinner? 
Well, technically. Well, what do you mean? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever had a sexual relation outside of your marriage? Have you ever gotten drunk? Have you always honored your mother and father? Have you ever coveted your neighbors or wanted something your neighbor had? Well, yeah, everybody does that. Well, sure, and that's why everybody's guilty. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, none of us. We're all in the same boat. Guilty as charged. Saul, confronted with his guilt before God, recognized his sin and had to come to the most profound thing that he ever had a struggle with in his life, and that was this. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, we see the evidence of his conversion when we find these words. I glory now in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. It says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh or to think that somehow or another our own merits are going to, you know, we're going to be able to withstand the judgment of God because of, hey, but don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Haven't you read my resume? He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But, it's huge. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss or rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, I live my life now that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. The man who denied that Jesus rose from the dead, whose life had been radically transformed by the power of the very resurrection that he denied, said there is nothing important in life to know now except the power of his resurrection. Whatever he counted as of any value up to meeting Jesus Christ personally, he threw it all out the window. I was running yesterday and I thought about what an impacting statement that is. It would be as though the leader of one of the largest denominations in the world, the leader of one of the largest cults in the world, had come into contact with Jesus Christ through the Spirit of, the God, the Spirit of God, using the Word of God as being proclaimed by a man of God, where he was led to be convicted of his sin and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ. Could you imagine the headlines of a person who for years pursued the highest position of whatever religious denomination or or whatever cult that that was, who came face to face with the risen Christ and said, everything I've lived for and everything I believed is wrong. And I count it all as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and the power of His resurrection. What religion could not do, a relationship with Jesus Christ did. Transformed my life eternally. An eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. We do not appreciate historically what Saul of Tarsus is admitting at this point. Everything I believed, 
everything I have done, all the persecution and even the murder, I am guilty as charged by God and I fall on my face in the dust and the dirt and I say to him, you know what? What is it you want me to do? And that's consecration. That's getting to that point. 180 degree turn from, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Genuine saving faith, an eternal life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God. Initiate, uh, God-initiated contact leads to conviction of sin and repentance from such and responding with faith to the finished work of Christ. We have a conversion. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. There's consecration, which has to do with the fact, if you'll notice, in the King James Version and also, also the Amplified, the question, what shall I do, is there. It's suggested in the New American Standard because he is told to arise and go and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. So, whether it was verbal, whether it was in his heart, the question is, hey, what do you want me to do? Any genuine, eternal, life-changing encounter with the risen Christ leads to a point in our life where we just go, you know what? It's not my will anymore. It's yours. What do you want me to do? Everything I believed was wrong. The way I did things led me to being knocked down and put in the dust and humiliated before God. I thought I was pretty sharp. I'm finding out I'm not very sharp compared to the living God, the creator of the universe. There is only one God, and I'm not Him any longer. And so now I submit to you. That consecration of my life now being submitted to God's will is a sign or evidence, a genuine evidence of a heart that has been made right with God. The person who continues to live their own life as if nothing had taken place. You can say whatever you want about yourself, but that is not evidence of a genuine, eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. You may have had a life-changing experience, but that's not an eternal life-changing encounter. It's a huge difference. The difference between the two is one ends up in heaven and the other ends up in hell. He was consecrated. What must I do? Rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. God crushed Saul, bringing him to the point of total consecration. God, not my will be done, but yours. From the ashes of Saul's old life would arise the noblest and most useful man of God the church has ever known. He was going into town in his own blaze of glory, but struck down by the glory of God. He was broken and humbled. And the Bible says that a humble heart, a broken heart, a contrite heart, God will never despise. We don't come to God on our own terms. It's really important for us to understand that. I'll give you an illustration of something that took place last week. We had a friend who flew in for, time, for, uh, for a day who had played for the Rams, was in one of our Bible studies. He stayed with us. And he was talking about his nephew who was living with them because he was a troubled teenager and they invited him into their home and they were hoping that the love of Christ could somehow or another transform this guy's heart. And a couple of years ago, they had sat down with him and confronted him about the claims of Christ and the truth of sin. 
Do you know you're a sinner? Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Uh, do, do, do you want to repent from your sin and turn to Christ and trust in His death and the power of His resurrection to bring about an eternal life or forgiveness in your heart? And he said all the right things. Yeah, well, yeah, I want to do that. And so as it went on, a couple of years go by and they find out the kid's into drugs and the kid's into alcohol, he's into pornography and all kind of sexual immorality and he's troubled by this. The kid's living under their roof with five of their own children. And so as they begin to talk and as they begin to confront him, it's like, hey, you know what? There was no evidence of any eternal life-changing encounter with Christ. And I said, Leo, let me ask you a question. As it was presented to him, and you began to talk with him and ask him the question, what did he have to say? And he said, the only reason I prayed that prayer was because I believed that was the only way I'd ever see my dad again because his dad had died. And so he believed that praying a prayer was his ticket to heaven. There was no brokenness for sin. There was no recognition of guilt before God. There was no crying out to God for forgiveness because he didn't think that he had done anything wrong. To him, praying a prayer was a ticket to heaven. And let me tell you something. There are many people in our culture who believe the same thing today. You're missing something in your life. You got everything you want materially. You know you're going to die. Why don't you hedge all your bets and, you know, and kind of balance it out a little bit. And you know, if all you've got to do is pray this prayer or sign this card or go down front or whatever it is you have to do, why don't you do that and kind of cover all your bases just in case this thing's true? There's no brokenness of sin. There's no recognition of guilt. There's no falling upon the mercy of God that we have offended a holy and righteous God and said, God, I have sinned against you. Saul recognized his sin. He was broken and humbled before God. And he cried out, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. Everything I believed was wrong. Everything that I did was wrong. Even though I was sincere in what I did, I was still wrong in, 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 in everything. Forgive me. Conviction of sin after contact by the Holy Spirit can only take place at conversions only genuine when the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, proclaimed by a man of God, convicts a sinner of sin so that they turn to God and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, His death and His resurrection. It's not by works of righteousness, but by faith in Christ. By grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God offered to all who would receive the gift. But it's not something you add to your life because something's missing or you feel empty or cover your bases. It's genuine brokenness and repentance. Have you been broken for sin? Do you realize it was your sin that sent Christ to the cross? He endured the pain, despised the shame for the joy that was set before Him that those of us who were given to Him by the Father would come unto Him and hear His voice and know Him, trust in Him, believe in Him, and then be protected by Him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for Thou art with me. The intimate relationship of God with His people only comes through the path of brokenness for sin. Have you come to God on your own terms? Then you haven't come to Him at all. It's His way. And His way is brokenness for sin. 
conviction of unrighteousness. Consecration is a result where we turn to Him and say, Lord, I'm Yours now. Paul said it best. Don't you know you've been bought with a price? The precious blood of Christ and that it is He who now owns title to you and to me who have trusted in Him. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to manage your financial resources for your glory and for your kingdom? How do you want me to love my wife or my husband or my children? How do you want me to train them in the way that they should go that when they're old they won't depart from it? Every area of my life you've radically transformed everything. The business you've entrusted me is your business. How do we treat our employees so that the love of Christ is seen through our life? How is integrity seen in our dealings with others from a business standpoint that they go, oh man, you know what? You didn't have to do that. You weren't legally bound to do that. But morally and ethically, everything I am and who I am is because of faith in Christ and Him alone. I've got a transformed life. I'm not the way I used to be, thank God. And I'm not even yet what I'm going to be. But that historic moment in time, I became a child of God. And I'm working and, and working my salvation out with fear and trembling, but I'm moving in a direction so one day I'll become more like Jesus. That's consecration. Communion in verse 9 was, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Three days without sight, neither eating nor drinking, and God led him through the process of restructuring everything he was and did. Although salvation is an instantaneous transformation, you're born again in a moment in time. From death to life, from darkness to light, it takes time to begin to understand the depths of its meaning and its richness. And Saul, in the solitude of those three days, where he could see nothing, where he ate nothing, where he drank nothing, began to reflect on who Jesus Christ truly is in his life. He is his Lord, and he is his Savior, and he is committed to him, and his life was transformed. And he is one of the greatest historical arguments for their genuineness and the historicity and, and their reliability and the trustworthiness of the Christian faith. No one can explain the transformation of Saul of Tarsus outside of the biblical account that he had met the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had persecuted and denied his very resurrection. It's hard to keep on preaching he's not raised from the dead when you've met him and spoke with him in person. His life was historically changed. We have all, to one degree or another, had a life-changing experience or two. But the question in closing is this, but have you had an eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, He is initiating contact with you even today. Because the Spirit of God is using the very words of God being proclaimed by a man of God to convict you of sin, that you would agree and that you would repent, that you would turn from sin and turn to God. To convict you of sin, to change your mind, to change your heart about who you think you are about being a good person or not being that bad or doing good things or working your way to heaven or somehow coming to church today is what's going to make you right with God. He says, you've got to change your mind about all of that because all of that is as filthy rags to God. There's only one thing and one thing only that God finds acceptable and that is His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. You come to Him 
on his terms. You seek God's forgiveness because you recognize your guilt. You trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, believing in his death on your behalf and the power of his resurrection that he can do as he said he can do, offer to, offer to you who turn to him eternal life to those who believe in his name. If that is from the sincerity of your heart, your desire, the Bible says you're born again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once that's been resolved, He owns you. He bought you. Consecrate yourself to Him and become obedient in every area of your life. And He will use you mightily to tell others about Jesus Christ. Like Saul of Tarsus, now known as the Apostle Paul, your life will never be the same. It'll never be the same. And next week we'll look at six more evidences that you have truly had an eternal life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We just thank you from the life of Saul of Tarsus and the transformation that we now know him as Paul the Apostle. From enemy to embracer, from antagonist to apostle. God, if any man is in Christ, you tell us that we're new creatures. Old things pass away and all things become new. God, may we clearly have evidence of this transformation in our life so that we are not deceived into believing that which is not true of our eternal spiritual condition. God, we just thank you that we can clearly see the evidence from Saul's life to Paul that a man who said absent from the body he'd be present with the Lord, there's no question about his position in Christ. And so as we look at the evidence of his life, we can be confident that if it's true of our life, that we can make the same claims as well. Because it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. And we just thank you and praise you in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.